So I straight up love and loathe John Locke, so I hope that that ambivalence will provide some good sparks of thought. I mean, the general framework for me is this question that's been asked since the days of Socrates. It's one of the earliest recorded examinations of this question was, okay, here's the challenge for moral philosophers. Can you provide a justification for political power that doesn't just rely on brute force? Can you supply a moral justification or any justification for political power that doesn't just rely upon a recognition of brute force? Can you find a moral foundation for political power? And Socrates wasn't able to answer it, and really nobody's been able to answer it because it can't really be answered, but John Locke had his own answer, which produced great freedom and great tyranny. So when you have political power, human beings inevitably tend towards evil. Now, what is evil? Is evil predation? No. Is it lying? No. Evil is when you mask force in virtue. Right? And virtue is pretending something vo- is voluntary when it is, in fact, coercive. Knowing the virtue of voluntarism while using your knowledge and people's general perception of the virtue of voluntarism to mask coercion, to cover up coercion. That's why animals aren't capable of evildoing because they do not use abstract moral principles of virtue to cover up predation and exploitation. The whole social contract theory is saying that your participation in political power or your subjugation under political power is the result of voluntary, rational, positive decisions, right? That you submit to a state because your life is better when you have a state and so on, right? So John Locke was... Oh, man. I mean, for as far as his metaphysics go and his epistemology goes, he was pretty good. Pretty good. Certainly the closest to rational philosophy that we've come to so far. He was very concerned with the rights and peace of children, of childhood. He spoke a lot about parenting, as Rousseau did as well, which we'll get to Rousseau soon. But he was very close to a rational philosophy, and then, of course, he went off the rails with regards to ethics and politics. And going off the rails with regards to ethics and politics when you have a good metaphysics and epistemology is really bad. It's really bad because what happens is if you give people economic liberty and the sovereignty and value of their own consciousness that everyone is available to reason and to think and to understand and to be productive, and if you loosen economic restrictions, you give people economic freedoms and let them think for themselves and produce for themselves, and you protect their property rights through the mechanisms of the state, you get this explosion in wealth, and the explosion of wealth then feeds the state to, well, I think we know the, uh, well, we don't know the final answer to that, but we're not far off. So let's talk about John Locke as a whole. So he lived from 1632 to 1704, and by the end of the 17th century, he was recognized as one of the greatest philosophers in Europe. In Europe, Now, I won't get into a lot of the political details here because I really want to focus on the philosophy side of things, but the 17th century was truly wild when it came to English political history and transformations and intellectual history and progress, conflicts between the king and parliament and conflicts between various... Christian denominations, the Protestants, the Anglicans in particular, and the Catholics went straight to civil war in the 1640s. And 
his experience of the Civil War and the extraordinary danger of the Civil War to him and to his friends and actually to my ancestor, William Molyneux, who was one of his best friends, was quite considerable. Okay, so let's start with his life. He was born in Rington, and his parents were Puritans, not particularly wealthy. His father was a country lawyer, and in the early stages of the English Civil War, Locke's father served in the cavalry company on the Puritan side. His parents, of course, were Puritans. And his father's commander, a man named Alexander Popham, became the local member of parliament. And I guess they were good friends because it was Alexander Popham's patronage that gave John Locke, whose intellectual abilities were recognized pretty early on, access to a very highfalutin, top-tier, top-shelf formal education. So in 1647, Locke went to the Westminster School in London. From there, he went to Christ Church, Oxford, in the autumn of 1652, when he was 20. And Westminster School was considered the elite uh, of the uh, English schools, Christ Church, was the most important Oxford college. But, of course, education at Oxford, education is in general very backward-looking. Philosophy is forward-looking. Education tends to be backward-looking. And Hobbes found it kind of stifling. Locke also found the Aristotelian philosophy very stifling and actually <laughs> largely useless. But, of course, it wasn't just Aristotle that he was being taught. The new scientific experimental philosophy had also arrived, and that gave him access to the productive power of scientific empiricism. And philosophers worth their salt, work with their hands, are drawn to science, work with reality. And as we'll sort of see down the road, John Locke became an excellent, excellent physician and saved his patron's life and consulted with other doctors about how to best perform an operation on the cyst of a liver that was causing massive infection in his patron. And recognized the value of cleanliness in the operating room, which was still under dispute even up to the 19th century. So he saw through science and through medicine the value of subjecting yourself to empirical universal disciplines, which doubtless had a huge effect on his metaphysics and epistemology, study of nature, uh, the nature of reality and the, the requirements for truth. So the Royal Society, the germination of the Royal Society, the English Royal Society, basically the scientific society. It grew out of these informal meetings and discussion groups uh, at Oxford and other places. It became uh, a formal institution in the 1660s after the restoration of the monarchy, and it was in constant battle, right? The Royal Society was in constant battle with the scholastic and Aristotelian traditions that were all over the place in the universities. The program that they suggested the Royal Society, the Scientific Society, was stop studying books and study nature. And this idea that you get truth from books or truth from nature is absolutely foundational to the conflicts in the modern world. So there are people who want to study, for instance, the relationships between men and women by studying books rather than studying reality by studying statistics, often manipulated like wage gap statistics and so on, rather than studying actual reality, to study feminists talking about men rather than going and actually talking to men and trying to figure out their experience. Do you go to facts in nature or do you rely on other people's interpretations? Well, of course, sophists are very keen to point 
people towards books rather than reality because sophists can write books and alter numbers and lie and damned lies with statistics, but they can't alter reality. A feminist can tell you what to think of men, but if you actually go and talk to a man, the feminist becomes irrelevant. They, the gatekeeping of the feminists, and this, of course, occurs on the men's right side as well, that they want you to understand women by listening to, you know, sometimes fairly bitter men rather than actually going and talking to women and finding out what's going on, actually looking at evolutionary theory and biological facts and so on. So sophists want you to look at books because books can be manipulated, whereas reality can't be manipulated. And so this idea that you should study reality and come to your own conclusions rather than study other people's manipulations of reality called books is really, really important. And is we're right back to scholasticism and Aristotelianism versus science and the study of nature and reality and facts. We're right back there. In fact, you could argue that it's even worse now because back then you only had to overthrow Aristotle. Now you have to overthrow an entire legion of overeducated sophists in charge of higher education. So, Okay, 1674, Locke goes back to Oxford and he gets a degree in Bachelor of Medicine and a license to practice medicine. And then he goes to France. He travels from Calais to Paris, then to Lyons, and then on to Montpellier. And he spends 15 months there. Now, what's he doing down there? Well, he's studying Protestantism in France. So religious conflicts, really, really briefly, because I've talked about this before. So really briefly, the religious conflicts are when you have a clergy, when you have Catholic priests in charge of a text that no one else can read because it's written in Latin or it's written in ancient Greek or ancient Aramaic or whatever, right? You have a clergy in charge of the text that no one can read then they tell you what's in the Bible, and they're following the edicts of the Pope, and they're following the edicts of the higher church councils, so you have a kind of consistency. Martin Luther comes along, translates the Bible into the vernacular, into the local language. People start to read it for themselves. They start to come to their own conclusions. Subjectivity plus absolutism is war. We understand this. Human conflict. It's war in the house. It's war in the community. It's war between nations. It's war with yourself. Subjectivity plus absolutism is war. This is the root of violence. It's the root of conflict. It's the root of hatred. It's the root of escalation. Subjectivity plus absolutism plus the state is civil war. And this is what was occurring throughout Europe for hundreds of years, that people read the Bible, and due to their own particular predilections, their own trauma, their own personalities, they focus on certain elements of the Bible and escalated those to absolutism. And the absolutism with people who believe in the afterlife is almost infinitely greater than any atheist or secularist or uh, material-focused person could ever imagine because it's about the eternal destination of your soul, eternal reward versus eternal punishment. So you take subjectivity, which is what you prefer to find in the Bible, plus absolutism, it is absolutely true and moral, and the salvation or damnation of your soul relies upon getting this absolutely right, and then you combine that with the power of the state, then you have basically a whole bunch of people who want to shoot each other. There's one gun in the room, and they're all grabbing at it. They're all trying to gain political power so that they can impose their own subjective absolutes. And the reason I say subjective is not to deny that there are true things in the Bible, but to say that because it's not a philosophical process of acquiring knowledge, it's subjective. Because the Bible contradicts itself, and people 
who and the studies have been done on this. So people who are raised more gently view uh, a loving God or perceive a loving God. People who are raised more harshly tend to view a more punitive Old Testament punishing God. So there's a lot of subjectivity, and it's elevated through theology to the status of absolutism, which leads to violence. So this was the fabric of Western society being torn apart by these warring factions, all aiming to gain control of the state. Now, the Edict of Nantes, which was put in by Henry IV in 1598, was the rule in France. So there was some degree of religious toleration. And then in 1685, Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, and then French Protestants were murdered by by the masses. 400,000 of them were driven or fled into exile. It was just a mess. Now, remember, Shaftesbury, who was his father's patron and therefore his patron, got into a lot of political trouble. He was imprisoned twice in the Tower. Eventually, he was put on trial and acquitted, and he was moving from safe house to safe house because he was associated with rebellion against the king, and then he just gave up. And in November 1682, Shaftesbury fled to Holland. He actually died there a couple of months later in January 1683. Now, Locke, I guess, gritting his teeth and keeping his head on a swivel, did stay in England until something called the Rye House Plot. And this was named after the house wherein the plotters were going to fire at the king and his brother. Uh, This Rye House Plot was discovered in June of 1683, and Locke was associated with this by the government. There's evidence that he wasn't, but by the government. And he visited his... West Country Estates put its affairs in order, and the very week that the plot was revealed to the state, and then by September of that year, he had fled to Holland, where he stayed for uh, five years. And so he was, at this point, he was working on an essay concerning human understanding, which was one of the first great philosophical works to really try and figure out how we can know what is true. How can we know what is true and what is false? And we'll, we'll get to that in, in a few minutes. He was, like a lot of philosophers, he was of ill health, quite, quite sickly and so on. Not, not as bad as Pascal, but, but pretty bad. So a lot of English revolutionaries, the people who wanted more power to Parliament and less power to the king, a lot of revolutionaries had fled to Holland, and he was very closely associated with these revolutionaries in exile, and the English government was, you know, freaking out about this group, as revolutionaries and exiles tend to freak out governments. And they put a lot of pressure on the government in Holland to round up Locke and these English revolutionaries and extradite them back to England for reasons, I think, lost to history. The government in Holland declined that. Uh, Locke's studentship at Oxford was taken away from him. And, of course... The, I guess the CIA of the time, the English intelligence agencies, did find a way to infiltrate, the, infiltrate these rebel groups in Holland and did manage to thwart their efforts to some degree for some time. But, of course, eventually these rebels uh, succeeded. So King James II did eventually annoy, alienate, and frustrate most of his supporters. And then eventually William of Orange was invited to bring his Dutch soldiers to England. And after William's army landed, James II, the king, 
realizing that he didn't have enough supporters or enough martial strength to mount any kind of resistance, he fled England to uh, to exile in, in France. So this was called the Glorious Revolution. It was eventually called the Glorious Revolution because, of course, history is completely objective. This was 1688, a huge turning point in English history. So the balance of power through the Glorious Revolution in 1688, the balance of power in the government in England shifted from the king to Parliament. And once this occurred, Locke was able to return to England, which he did in February of 1689. Now, after his return from exile, Locke Locke published an essay concerning human understanding, his foundational work on, to some degree, metaphysics, but largely epistemology, and the two treatises on government. And also, uh, a fellow named Popple had translated Locke's A Letter Concerning Toleration about the separation of church and state. This was also published as well. Now, the two treatises of government and the letter concerning toleration were published anonymously, and Locke strenuously denied that he was the author, although, of course, a lot of people recognized the style and clarity. And even his friends who kept talking about John Locke being the author of these things, Locke would meet with them privately and say, dude, what are you, do- what are you doing? Please shut the hell up about me being the author of these things, because this was a time of significant censorship and uh, deplatforming that involved beheading. So, you know, I, I keep this in perspective with regards to my own deplatforming that at least my head is attached to my shoulders and hopefully to uh, truth, reason, and evidence. So he would sit with his friends and say, dudes, you really, really, really have to shut up about this stuff because uh, I'm really trying to keep this on the down low. And he actually broke with friends who wouldn't shut up about this stuff. So uh, it is pretty. it was pretty rough to him. Now, uh, he was, of course, aging out. The last eight years of his life, he had significant asthma. And remember, of course, in London over the winter, it's all coal-fired, it's wood-fired, there's just smoke everywhere. It was pretty wretched. So he could only go to London uh, four months of the year during the time when it was warmer in London, and therefore there was more ventilation. And uh, he did, of course, a lot of work. He worked for the state. Uh, He... um, uh, worked for the Board of Trade. Uh, he he managed some colonial, uh, some aspects of colonialism and so on, and uh, he really began to fade out. Uh, he was in retirement at Oates. He really began to fade out last couple of months of his life, lost most of his hearing, could barely get out of bed, and then was sitting with a friend of his, touched his face, and died on Sunday, the 28th of October, 1704. So let's turn to his great project. And of course, since the dawn of philosophy, really since the dawn of our capacity to think, it has been a goal to try and figure out how to know what is true and how to know what is false in confidence, not in probabilities, but in confidence with absolute certainty. And of course, this was my goal with UPB, to understand morality with absolute certainty. Because wherever there's certainty, it's like building a wall to keep out water and then having a hole in it. Well, the hole is going to let in water. The hole can be big or small. The water can come in fast or slow, but it's going to come in. There's no point having the wall. All it does is concentrate the water into where it comes in. So the barrier to falsehood needs to be absolute. It can't be probabilistic. It can't be statistical. It can't be, well, but, you know, shades of gray. It has to be absolute because otherwise, where it's not absolute, Sophists will use that to get their claws in, widen the hole, and take down your wall. It has to be absolute, and moral understanding has to be absolute, and simple knowing what is true about reality has to be absolute, and Locke's goal was to figure out how we can be absolutely certain 
of things. So in book one, there are four books as a whole, right? So in book one, Locke argues against the concept of innate knowledge. Now, this is incredibly powerful stuff, massive, massive stuff. Let me sort of tell you, this is my entire graduate school thesis, so I'll get to that in a bit. Do you have innate knowledge? Are you born with innate knowledge? Of course, Plato would argue, yes, of course we're born with innate knowledge. It's our knowledge of the forms before we were born, when we're floating in another universe and see everything that is perfect, and then we see those one reflections of perfections, and that's how we know things. So he says, yes, we're born with innate knowledge. For Locke, he says, there's no innate knowledge. Now, this is amazing. What a countervailing argument to authority, right? Because if you have no innate knowledge, then everyone has access to truth through the evidence of the senses. Everyone. It's not mystical, it's not revealed, it's not some deity whispering to you in a desert, it's not a revelation, it's not through your studying of the world of forms, which you can never communicate to anyone else. The blank slate, what he called tabula rasa, blank slate, that we're born empty, and all knowledge comes to us through the senses, means that no man can tell another man the truth based on the argument from authority. Because if the truth comes through the senses and everyone has evidence of the senses, then no one has a mystical monopoly on truth. It's a huge and powerful idea. Now, of course, he's not the only philosopher to say that there's no innate knowledge, right? He's like Berkeley and Hume in this way, but different from Descartes and uh, Leibniz, which we'll get to another time. So he says, you're born a blank slate, as is an old Dr. Phil, you know, uh, people write on the slate of who you are, right? So you're born blank slate, and then experience writes knowledge into your head. So ideas are the materials of knowledge, and all ideas come from experience. So what Locke refers to ideas, he says, quote, ideas stands for whatever is the object of the understanding when a man thinks. Now, he says experience, there's two kinds of experience. There's sensation and reflection, roughly analogous to the senses and concepts. So sensation informs us about what's going on in the external world, things, objects, processes, uh, uh, light, dark, colors, heat, cold, whatever, right? And sensation gives you knowledge about the external world. Reflection tells us about the operations of our own minds, but since sensation leads to reflection, any reflection that contradicts sensation is invalid. Now, of course, this is straight-up scientific method. If you have a theory that contradicts what actually happens in the world, your theory is incorrect. So some ideas we're only going to get from sensation, some only from reflection. Some, of course, are a mix of both. Ideas, according to Locke, are simple or complex now, simple ideas, sort of the sensation thing, we can't create them, right? We can't, create, we can't will a cloud to materialize in a cloudless sky. We can't will it to be midnight when it's noon. So we can't create these simple ideas, these, these sensations. We can get them from experience as a whole. So the world impresses itself upon your mind vividly through the evidence of the senses, 
and that's a passive action, right? It's just it they're flowing in. Like you watching a movie, it's passive, right? Now, once you gather together enough of these simple ideas, your mind can abstract them. It can create concepts. It can find particular characteristics, abstract them from the instance, like each individual hair becomes a hairstyle. Uh, hair becomes a concept of hair that applies to the hair on your arms, the hair on your head, and so on, right? And that's an active process. Concepts don't just magically appear in our minds. The sensations do, and the sensations aren't just direct sense experience, but even something like the color red. That impresses itself on our mind, but the concept of color and and so on is dif- is different. So... He says, and this is empiricism as a whole, there's nothing in the mind that did not come through the senses at some point. Nothing in the mind that did not come in through the senses, right? We're born empty, we're filled up by experience. The mind's contents are all dependent upon the senses. And now, of course, you can abstract evidence from the senses to create concepts and and principles and, and theories and so on. And this goes all the way back to a book I read when I was in my early teens, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where the argument was human beings can't create anything. We can simply stitch together disparate things, like we can think of a horse with a horn on its head, we can think of a, a lizard, make it really large, give it wings, and give it the ability to breathe fire. But breathing and fire and lizards and wings and horses and unicorns are all things that have come to us through the senses. And if you try to imagine something that has never come to you through the senses, it's kind of impossible. And I remember giving myself that exercise when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, which is, okay, can I come up with something that does not come through the evidence of the senses and has no relationship to the evidence of the senses? Well, no. And so what is in your mind that never came to you from the senses? Really, really important. Because if everything in your mind has to come through the senses then no man has a monopoly on the truth because the truth is not revealed. The truth is not a higher dimension. The truth is not something that can't be communicated or can't be proven in any way. So even, even things like the three laws of logic, right? So uh, what is, is, or things can't be both themselves and something else. Uh, things are not, things are either themselves or something else, right? Sort of law of identity, either or and so on, non-contradiction. He says, okay, well, if these are innate, then little toddlers, little babies, and people who are uh, called idiots, right? People who have significant, they were called idiots at the time, people with significant mental deficiencies should be aware of these truths, right? If we're born with innate ideas, they should be the most vivid and strongest when we're babies, right? So if we, like with, with Plato, right? So Plato says, well, we know all these forms before we're born, and therefore the forms should be the most vivid to babies, infants, toddlers, right? Of course. If you've just seen a movie, and you walk right out of the movie, and somebody says, what's the story of the movie? Give me a couple of great quotes. You'll be able to tell the story of the movie pretty well and give a couple of great quotes and so on. If someone, and then move on with your life, right? But if you see a movie, it's not a particularly memorable movie, say, and then five years later, somebody says to you, what was the story of the movie and what are some memorable quotes? You won't remember those. So if we have innate ideas in our minds, they must come from before we're born. 
So we should have the most recognition of those innate ideas should be the strongest. But of course, and philosophers, one of the reasons I wanted to be a stay-at-home dad was philosophical. I wanted to see how my daughter's brain was going to develop because we can't remember the development of our own brains in particular, right? But I wanted to see how my daughter's brain was going to develop. And it developed according to empiricism, according to Lockean absolutes. So she did not know object constancy was very little. I remember her learning object constancy. She did not understand death. She thought it was going to sleep, that you wake up. So she referenced all of the abstractions relative to her own very limited experience. So she was born, and look, she was born with personality. She was born with instincts and so on. And Locke would not say that we don't have any innate predispositions or instincts or anything like that. But as far as knowledge goes, it has to come through through the senses, right? I mean, if, if we can imagine uh, some, like, just imagine there was an abstract mind that you could squirt around into different bodies, right? You could transplant minds. And let's say that you took two twin minds and you put one of them into a newborn or a fetus in Japan and another one in Mexico to a Japanese, a racial Japanese person and a racial, racial Hispanic person. Well, the minds that you put into the brain of the Japanese fetus would grow up in Japan as a racially Japanese person learning Japanese in the Japanese culture in a Japanese family. And that person would be uh, Japanese. They would have no non-Japanese elements uh, to them in terms of everything you could measure and everything that they would know. You take that identical, like a twin mind, and you put it into the new zygote of a Hispanic person in the backwoods of Mexico, then they're going to grow up as a Hispanic person in Mexico. They're going to learn Spanish. They're going to be part of the Spanish culture and so on. And so what innate stuff is there? Now, this isn't to say we don't have free will, and, and, and so we'll get into all of that. But you can try and think of anything that's in your mind that doesn't go back to the evidence of the senses. And it's really not possible to do it. Try imagination. Try think of things that, that you have no sense data or experience of. Well, so that's one of the, uh, the arguments against the sort of we have knowledge before we're born. Now, this was radical stuff for England at the time, not just in England. So the view in England at the time was we are born with innate ideas, innate moral principles, innate virtues, and it's absolutely necessary for that to have stability in your society, right? Culture. Culture is, to some degree, genetic. It is, or they wouldn't say genetic, of course, they didn't know about genes, but they would say innate. And so if you are going to say that there's no innate knowledge, then culture is an imprinted set of prejudices that are supposed to regulate society. Now, of course, Locke, in his day, would say, well, it ain't, regula- it ain't regulating society too well now, is it? Because we've got revolution, we've got potential civil war, we have uh, uh, instability uh, and just monstrous stuff. And, of course, when he was going through uh, France, uh, he saw some of that. And it got even worse later on. He goes to Holland, which is, or he flees to Holland, he's chased to Holland, and he finds the most religious society, most religiously tolerant society, and finds that uh, oh, people can disagree and so on. So 
if he's going to take a real go at the culture and saying, you know, culture is something we imprint upon children. It's not innate to anyone. The morals, the virtues, the standards, the habits, they're all imprinted on children. There's nothing true about them because if you say, well, truth is innate uh, to our situation, then people who grew up with a particular culture, it's just kind of innate and, and you can't argue them out of it. It was like trying to talk someone who's blue-eyed into being brown-eyed. It doesn't work. So although it may not seem particularly radical to us today, man, it was monstrous back in the day. And this is the kind of thing that happens when you get different religions and different cultures trying to live together. And in particular, the discovery of the New World and the indigenous populations of North and South America was huge. Huge. It gave people a sense of where we came from as a society, as a species. It's one of the reasons why the noble savage was kind of trans transmogrified into the state of nature arguments, because, of course, it was pretty savage among the indigenous populations, as it was also quite savage in Europe and sometimes even worse. So when you get a complexity or a diversity of arguments, innate ideas, and the virtue of your own particular tribal arguments is really thrown into question. And through that dazed disorientation of running into people who are as certain as you that their opposite view is totally right, it's a huge thing. If you're just around an echo chamber, right? A lot of cultures, when they don't meet other cultures, kind of an echo chamber. And if you meet people, this is why I love debates, you meet people who are absolutely certain that the polar opposite of your belief or your beliefs are absolutely true. Well, that's the friction that sparks philosophy. How can they who believe the opposite of me be absolutely certain that things are absolutely true? Ah, what is truth? If you're just around people who are raised in the same culture and believe that it's all absolutely true and so on, you don't get the sparks of philosophy. So conflict breeds philosophy, and philosophy aims to reduce conflict by trying to convince people of principles that are outside of the concept of innate ideas, right? So the doctrine of innate principles, Locke says, if you accept that, and I quote, eased the lazy from the pains of search. Right? So if you believe, well, X, whatever X principle is, X is innate. X truth is innate. Okay, well, we stop looking for the cause. We stop trying to prove it because it's innate, right? And probably some, I mean, some of this came out of the political instability of the time, but without a doubt, it also came out of Locke being hammered with, read the text, read the text, scholasticism and Aristotelianism when he was at Oxford in the school before. So there's an anti-authoritarian element to arguing against innate principles. Also, it is the road to free speech. It is the road to free speech. You give no man a monopoly on truth. You give no woman, no priest, no king, no member of parliament, no scientist, no teacher, no professor has any authority on truth. Therefore, the truth emerges painfully, like a sculptor chipping away at everything in a block of marble that doesn't look like whatever he's trying to carve. It's a social process of whittling away falsehood to get to the truth. So you need to have freedom 
and you need to have questions and you have to assume that nothing is true because the blank slate in the mind is the blank slate in philosophy and this is what I did blank slate is hugely important to me right it's also important by the way for dealing with childhood trauma right that you were not born traumatized trauma was inflicted upon you and it can be can be undone so I want to do a little sideby here about childhood and parenting we're going to get this increasingly, particularly with Rousseau. We're going to get this more and more as we go forward. right? So in his essay concerning human understanding, he says, we are not born with any innate ideas. We derive our knowledge entirely from, and I quote, external, sensible objects perceived and reflected on by ourselves. So, if you're going to deal with tabula rasa, you need to deal with childhood. Because if we're born blank slates, how do we become who we are? How do we end up with the beliefs that we believe? So, Locke is one of the first philosophers to delve into childhood. Right? Blank slate, empiricism, means you have to start with childhood if you want to understand the perceptions of knowledge in those around you. Not the reality of knowledge, the perceptions of knowledge in those around you, the certainties that aren't factual. You have to figure out if we're born blank slate, how do we end up with a portrait, right? An artist starts with a blank canvas. Okay, so he gets his paint, he gets his brush, he, right? he paints, he, he shifts, he mixes his paints, he does all these things, right? You start with a blank slate. Okay, how do you end up with a portrait? Well, you have to start with the artist, and you have to start with the painting and the technique and the process and right? what he's looking at. So Locke, by focusing on the blank slate, has to start with childhood and it's actually really beautiful what he talks about with regards to childhood. So because he's a tabula rasa guy, Locke argues that, and I quote, children commonly get not those general ideas of the rational faculty, nor learn the names that stand for them till having for a good while exercised their reason about familiar and more particular ideas. Right, so... You reason about immediate sense perception before you get to abstract reasoning. And uh, just regarding this innate things, could people say, oh, but what do you mean we don't have innate knowledge? Some people are born shy, some people are born outgoing, and so on, right? And this is Locke. He says, I deny not that there are natural tendencies imprinted on the minds of men, and that from the very first instances of sense and perception, there are some things that are grateful and others that welcome to them, some things that they incline to, and others that they fly. But this makes nothing for innate characters on the mind, which are to be the principles of knowledge regulating our practice. So yes, people are drawn to some things. Some kids are drawn to music. Some kids uh, hate noise. Some kids uh, uh, love fire. Some kids recoil from it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This is what he's saying. I remember two babies that I knew, uh, vacuuming around them. The first baby just stared at the vacuum with curiosity. The second baby uh, cried out and ran. They were siblings, right? A couple of years apart. So yes, absolutely. Some some people are born with greater sensitivity to stimulus. And, and, and so this idea that we're just a blank slate doesn't mean that you can write anything that you want. I mean, you can't, uh, you can't mime on a canvas, right? You can't dance on a canvas. You, ha- you can only paint on it, right? So canvas can't be anything. So, here's the thing. There's no natural knowledge of virtue. 
Right, so Plato says well, we're born with the knowledge of virtue that we see before we're born, and we just, we're naturally inclined towards that. But it can't be defined objectively because it's in the realm of the anti-senses. It's in the realm of unreality. It's the realm of anti-logic. So, because we're not born with any natural knowledge of virtue or any instinct towards virtue, how do we become virtuous? Well, parenting, teaching, early education, and in particular because we're empirical by the examples of our parents rather than the words that they say. So, early education is key, where even, and I quote from Locke, little and almost insensible impressions on their tender infancies have very important and lasting consequences. <sighs> Child is the father of the man. If you want to know why someone is the way they are, first place to look, not the only place to look, the first place to look is the childhood. He says, look, if you raise a child badly or don't give them any guidance at all, the child is likely to become kind of irrational and kind of cruel because, and again, I quote from Locke, the minds of children are as easily turned this or that way as water itself. As water itself. And again, we can think of, and I say sort of racially Japanese so that we control for the variables, right? You take a Japanese child of two Japanese parents at birth and move that child to Japan and have that child raised by, like, let's say, completely Japanese parents, they're going to become Japanese, right? So parenting becomes absolutely essential. If you want to make people good, you must model virtue and teach virtue to children. There's nothing innate about it. We don't say that children are born with an innate knowledge of English, right? Now, that's an innate capacity to learn language, but it could be Hispanic, it could be English, it could be Croatian, it could be Japanese, it could be Sanskrit or Latin or whatever, right? So human beings are born with an innate capacity to learn language, like a vessel, but the content, what you pour into a bowl, is not the nature of the bowl. The bowl is there to hold a liquid or a semi-liquid or I guess a solid if you want, right? The bowl is there to contain things. What you put in there is not the nature of the bowl, right? So the mind is there to, yeah, to learn language, to develop, but the kind of language that you teach matters, which is why children who grew up in Japan speaking Japanese in a Japanese school and Japanese family, they speak Japanese. You take that same kid, you raise them in an English-speaking place and they will speak English. So, this is what Locke says of all men and women. And I quote, Nine parts out of ten are what they are, good or evil, useful or not, by their education. Now, he's not talking about school here, because he's a homeschool guy. We'll sort of get to that. It is education that makes people productive or unproductive, good or evil, and therefore, if we want to improve society, we must improve the experience of children. We must teach children reason if we want a rational society. We must model virtue for our children if we want a virtuous society. I hope I can get across, though I probably can't, just what an unbelievably wrenching change this is. Because for a lot of religious people, not just Christians and maybe a little bit more Catholics. For a lot of religious people, we're born sinful. The world is 
the playground of Satan. Temptation is everywhere, and you need to terrorize, terrify, and beat children into even having a chance to get to heaven. We understand tabula rasa is a direct smack in the face to original sin. We're not born evil. We're not born clouded with Adam's sin of disobedience. We're not cursed by God. We are born to be shaped by the actions and words of those around us. And again, you can shape clay into anything, but you can't turn it into an animal or a cloud or a window. Right? So, again, he's saying we have a natural capacity and and bent within our minds. So, you can shape clay, but you can't turn it into not clay. This is important because it's not like you can make anyone into anything. So he's saying if you want to make people virtuous, kindness, knowledge, consideration, and gentleness with children is the key. This is so unbelievably new that I really can't even express how astonishing this is. Stop pointing them at books. Model virtue to them. And this, you know, we don't teach children by giving them books of grammar. We teach them by appointing and speaking and, and so on, right? Um, reading, I was a little bit more grammar, but, but right, so. Get away from books. Get away from sophistry. I mean, it just remi- reminds me, uh, as a sort of experiment, when I was at uh, York University, I was at the Glendon campus, and it just happened to be that I was studying the same book in two different classes. I was doing English literature, which I did for two years. And just out of curiosity, I said, okay, well, I'm going to argue for one interpretation of this story in one class, and then I'm going to argue for the opposite interpretation of this story in another class. And both because I'm eloquent and convincing, and hopefully right, the one class where I argued that the book was about one thing, or the story, it was a short story, was about one thing, everyone was like, wow, that's really good. And the teacher was like, that's a very interesting interpretation. I can really see your case there, blah, 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 blah. And then I went to the other class and I argued the exact opposite. And the teacher was like, wow, the professor was like, wow, that's a really good interpretation. I can really see where you're coming from. And I'm like, man, peace out. I'm going to do history. Well, actually, I went to theater school. Then I did history. I wasn't going to go back to English because you can argue anything you want. It's groundless. Uh, it's a little crazy as far as that goes. And um, anyway, it's just a, a bit of nonsense for the most part. So what does Locke say? Well, be patient, be gentle, right? He says, be patient in answering questions and never, ever embarrass a child when a child asks what seems to be pretty obvious. And this is a quote. From Locke, children are strangers to all we are acquainted with, and all the things they meet with are at first unknown to them as they were to us. Ah, Be patient. Understand that these guys are coming from a situation of no knowledge. Everything which seems obvious to you, if you have empathy for yourself as a child, empathy for the child now, empathy for children, trying to understand the perspective of children. As opposed to, well, children are closest to original sin, And the purpose of education, you don't force people to do things. You don't force children to do things. And, and because they'll lose any relish for it, they'll avoid it, they'll re- rebel against it. 
So let them be free to discover, facilitate their discovery. Don't force knowledge on them. Don't force them to memorize things or times tables because being forced takes their free will and pleasure out of it. And he says, if you even were to force a child to play, the child would end up hating and resenting play. And here's a quote from Locke. Let a child be but ordered to whip his top, uh, spin his top, at a certain time every day, whether he has or has not a mind to it. Let this be required of him as a duty and see whether he will not soon be weary of any play at this rate. Is it not so with grown men? And this is another quote. Everyone can more easily bear a denial from himself than from anybody else. So you teach children through your own self-discipline, you teach children to have their own self-discipline, and that way they're not... Because if you say to someone, no, you can't, they rebel against it, and then they want it. But if some, if you say to yourself, well, I'd really like a piece of chocolate, but I've already had two, I won't have any more, you don't rebel against that. I mean, you may sometimes, but you can't rebel against it in the same way you would rebel against someone else. So children are naturally curious. All you need to do is facilitate their curiosity. They love freedom, because anything you force them to do, they will resent. And children have a great desire to be treated rationally. So check this out. I love this guy, man. John Locke explains that children, and I quote, understand reason as early as they do language. Children understand reason as early as they do language. Again, children start with their words at a year, 14 months, and so on. Reason with them when they're still babies. So he says, of course, we generally understand things that we see or appreciate things that we see quicker than we can recreate them. Like we can look at a beautiful painting, we can't paint it or whatever. We can hear a beautiful singer when we're not beautiful singers. So he says, children can't create their own concepts or abstract principles when they're very young, but they can recognize self-disciplined and developed rationality in others around them and take pride in going along with that and understanding and experiencing that, right? A child may not know how to deny himself, but he can see and appreciate self-denial in, in others, and that's how he internalizes it. Now, children don't know about gravity. Uh, they don't know about uh, electricity plugs in sort of the modern world, so parents have to control the environment and make some decisions for them in terms of, of food and, and safety and so on, right? So, children prefer to submit themselves to reason and evidence rather than parental will. Because reason and evidence is something they can internalize. Parental will is not going to follow them around like their shadow for the rest of their lives. And I remember seeing this in college when, you know, I, I had to abandon any subjugation to my mother's will when I was very young because she was crazy. Right? What did she used to say? insanity is hereditary. We get it from our kids. And I probably did drive her a little bit crazier by being so focused on rationality from such an early age. But I had to abandon all of that. I was paying my own bills from the age of 15 onwards, had roommates, had three jobs uh, at one point, as well as, as school. And so I had to internalize all this stuff. I had to internalize all of this stuff. So I wasn't submitting to somebody else's bullying or somebody else's authority, I was living my own life according to standards that were necessary. 
And so when I went to college, I didn't go through any drinking phase. I didn't gain that frosh 15 where people are just on the meal plan and eat whatever they want and give up exercising and so on. I went to school, to university, and I worked hard and I learned because I had internalized that self-discipline from, I don't know, I'm trying to sort of think. I do remember very clearly being, I don't know, maybe three or four. And, you know, of course, my mom nagged me to brush my teeth. And I remember at some point just very clearly thinking, well, you know what, actually they are kind of my teeth. And if they go bad, that's going to be bad for me. And just sort of recognizing that and recognizing that I had to come up with my own standards of behavior because my mother was not going to help me at all. In fact, was providing me a very bad example. So the best parents are those who get their children to submit to reason. So I remember having a conversation with my daughter. Uh, why, why dust, right? Why dust? Why are we dusting? I, don't, I can barely see it. Why are we doing that? And I said, well, do you like being warm in the winter and cool in the summer? It's like, yes. Well, what did we evolve in? You know, we evolved in lean-tos and shacks and caves and all things that had lots of air throughput, right? So we live in these sealed houses for the most part now. And what's the benefit of that? Well, we can heat them in the winter and we can cool them in the summer. But the price of a sealed house is a lack of air circulation. And dust builds up and dust falls like snowflakes, settles into the carpet and you step on the carpet and it poofs back up like a little explosion throws dust into the air. And if you breathe in enough of that dust, it can be bad for you. You can develop allergens and we went over allergies and how bad they can be and how unpleasant they are. Now, fortunately, I don't have any allergies, but you can easily develop develop them more, I think, in the modern world because of these hermetically sealed houses and departments and offices and so on. And so I said, so we need to reduce dust in the environment so that we stay healthy because at some point if we get enough dust in our lungs, our immune system will kick in and try to attack the dust, which is, uh, or whatever it is, the pollen and so on, right? So I said, you know, we, we're trying to avoid the lifelong hassle and difficulty. And I'm like, because, you know, having allergies is like having a permanent cold. Like, it's really bad, right? And then we went on to a discussion about how the reason why we have autoimmune disorders like um, arthritis and um, diabetes and other autoimmune disorders or subsets thereof is, is because of the Black Death, because the people who had the most hyperactive immune system survived the Black Death, but that hyperactive immune system can then be more tempted into attacking your own organs. We had a great conversation about that. So now it's not like, well, you've got a dust because that's just the way things are and it makes things look pretty and so on because if you can't really see the dust or doesn't care about it, those arguments don't work. But it's like, you know, it's like you brush your teeth and, and you dust and you vacuum, right, so that you don't... And, and she's like, well, doesn't the vent system filter out the dust? And it's like, it certainly does, but think of how long it's going to take right? How much dust is, is in the air. And then what you do is, you know, you can shine the flashlight at night and, and you can see the dust in the air. So that's what you're breathing in and it's going to clog up your lungs. So, you know, if, if it's like dust because you have to, dust because you should, dust because it makes things pretty, or if she doesn't care or whatever, right? Then she's just dusting because you're telling her to. And then when you stop telling her to, she'll stop dusting because it's not internalized, right? So, you got to teach kids to obey reason, not you. And this is a quote from Locke. For the child, and I quote, that is not used to submit his will to the reason of others when he is young, 
will scarce hearken or submit to his own reason when he is of age to make use of it. Right? So submitting your will to the reason of others, right? which is basically submitting to reason. Well, then he, if you won't, don't get used to submitting to reason in other people, which is submitting to reason, you won't ever reason with yourself or submit your own reason. Now, this is interesting, right? Sorry, I shouldn't say right like you know already, but here's what's interesting. So parents who don't teach their children reason and self-discipline and so on and overindulge their children, spoil them as we would say, can, and I quote, cherish their children's faults, end quote. And this can cause perversity in them. I sort of look at modern degeneracy and perversity, and I think this comes a lot from from spoiling, which to some degree has to do with father absence and so on, right? So all of these things are kind of right, kind of related. So what happens is, and this is a parent thing, though it's more of a female-to-male thing. So moms can be overindulgent and uh, over-buddy-buddy with their kids when they're very young, and then often things shift to the father who's like distant and punitive and severe as they grow older. And that doesn't internalize any discipline in the kids. And they end up becoming resentful of their parents. And, of course, a lot of revolution comes out of resentment against uh, parents. Now, as far as he homeschooling, he says, you know, you, your kids are as different as night and day. Even same siblings can be as different as night and day. And I, trust me, I know that one. And he says, like, you got to homeschool because any kind of organized regular out school is going to be one size fits all is not going to adapt itself to the local preferences of individualized personalities and so on. And, and, and Locke, again, how far ahead of his time was he? He said, look, if you, you send your kid off to school, whether it's a local school or a boarding school or whatever, who's going to teach him the most? Well, it's not going to be the teacher. It's going to be his peers. It's going to be the other boys. And Locke says, and I quote, malapertness, tricking, or violence learned among schoolboys, end quote. Well, these, these habits are really, really hard to reverse. And to these sort of, oh, homeschool kids, they've got no socializing and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, he just bring in interesting people in to have conversations. The kids will listen in and chime in when they get old enough. That's good enough. And he said, let's, okay, let's, worst case scenario, let's say that your homeschooled kid is super shy because, oh, for whatever reason, they never learned how to socialize. It's like, okay. Is it easier to cure shyness later or undo violent habits inflicted from peer peer pressure? Right? So if you can be bullied and cornered and cajoled and encouraged to be bad as a child by your peers, is it easy to reverse that? Or is it easier to reverse being bashful or shy? Well, you can cure bashful or shyness. Just chat with people and sort of force yourself to do it and you'll get over it. But if you've been tricked into cruelty to other children by the cruelty of other children, uh, good luck reversing that, right? So with as regards to corporal punishment, remember, this was a time of extraordinary violence against children. Extraordinary violence against uh, children. And Locke says, no, 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 that's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. You can praise or criticize your children verbally. He proposes that parents use, and I quote, softer ways of shame and and commendation. Because children want their pride, they want the approval of their parents, they gravitate towards reason and knowledge, they're curious, they want to know things, they want to be good, and they want to be held in high esteem by their parents. So disapproval, 
not in a manipulative way, but honest disapproval, is how you should guide your children. Praise and, and, well, first of all, you model it, you model reason, you speak to reason, you reason with them, and if they act in a cruel or, or callous or, or even careless manner, you can express your disapproval, and if they do what's right, you can praise them. And he also said, for children, give them the double plus good feelings of praise by praise them in public. And if you have criticisms of them, make sure that you always do that in private so that they don't feel the sting of humiliation. So that's wild, right? Back in the day. He did say, to be fair, he did say the corporal punishment could be used in an extreme situation, a really extreme situation. You know, the typical stories of your kids running towards, uh, I guess, uh, wagon wheels back in the day or a car, uh, a road with cars on it now. So in an extremity and so on. Okay, guy's not perfect. I get that. But it ties in perfectly with his theory of uh, states of governments. So he wrote, Parents wonder why the streams are bitter when they themselves have poisoned the fountain. Mm. Yeah, parents blame their kids. It's like, well, who was in charge, right? Uh, I had a parent complain to me, well, my kid's just not doing the right thing. My kid's not doing their chores. It's like, okay, well, it's your job to help the child understand why the chores are necessary. And so I gave the example of the dust, right? And if you have failed to teach your child, why are you complaining that your child doesn't know something? If your child doesn't know why the chores are important and why they have to be done, it doesn't mean that the child will always do them with a smile on their heart and spring in their step. But if the child, if I were to ask the child, why dust? Does the child, can the child give me a good answer? Or is the answer basically going to be because my mom tells me to? So you're getting angry at your kid for failing to learn something you've never taught her? So, again, child abuse, vicious child abuse was the norm. And Locke wrote, and I quote, Children who have been the most chastised seldom make the best men. Right? So violence produces negative outcomes. So, yeah, you've got to teach the kids self-denial by modeling self-denial and explaining why it's necessary. That's very, very important. And so I just really wanted to do this sidebar. Tabula rasa has massive implications on revelation, on the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings doesn't show up in the senses. It's something you're told about. It's something that's instructed to you and doesn't come from the senses. And so, royal authority, ecclesiastical authority, platonic authority, the authority of teachers, the authority of Aristotle. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and through that, of course, through that, tabula rasa means that the parents have a great deal to do with how the child turns out. And if you want to make society better, if you want to produce good children, reason with them, be peaceful with them, educate them, model good behavior, and you will get great kids. And, um, yeah, <laughs> I would certainly argue that according to my own localized experiment with, with my daughter. So, in book two of the essay, so book one of the essay concerning human understanding is Tabula Rasa, Blank Slate, 
arguments against innate knowledge. And then in book two, he's like, okay, how do we get knowledge? How do we get knowledge? So we get sensation, we get simple ideas, and then we get complex ideas, right? So again, I'm paraphrasing and some of the definitions have changed, so this is not an absolute one-on-one, but I think it's a good overlap. So sensation is red, like seeing something that's red. A simple idea is the concept red. A more complex idea would be the concept of color and a theory of how color shows up in our eyes. So we'd have a theory of light coming from the sun, bouncing off a particular object, uh, hitting our eyes with a certain wavelength, and then we process that as red, and then we have a concept of red. So the first thing we see is a splash of red, and then we come up with the idea of red, so we can use it to describe other things of a similar wavelength, and then we come up with the concept of color, which we don't see color. We see various different colors individually, but we don't see color as a whole, I guess, like Stephen Colbert. And so we color is a concept that's not direct from our senses, but it's derived from our senses. We see different colors, therefore we have the concept of color, but we can't see the concept of color. And then the whole model of how we end up with the very initial simple sensation is even more complex ideas, but it all comes out of our our senses. So I'm going to just dip over a little smidge here. This is uh, the essay that I wrote, oh gosh, 1990, something like that. So yeah, a good 32 years ago about Locke. Now I had just finished, and we'll get to Kant, but I had just finished Immanuel Kant. So uh, here's, I'll, I'll put a little bit of explanation in, but here's, here's the essay. So supersensualism for me was sort of higher reality, new realms, realm of forms, immaterial realm of pure knowledge that can't ever be detected by the senses or explained by reason. I called it supersensualism. I had sensualism, which was everything comes through the senses. Supersensualism was in opposition to or outside the realm of the senses. So Locke's philosophy amounts to an almost complete antithesis of suprasensualism. Where Kant argues that reality is unknowable, Locke argues that it is knowable. Where Kant argues that the senses are invalid arbiters of conceptual truth, Locke argues that the senses are the source of conceptual ideas. Where Kant argues that the existence of God limits reason, Locke argues that reason being a product of divinity, is absolute. Ah, you see? So Kant says, look, God gave us reason and stable senses, and therefore the exercise of reason is the absolute uh, manifestation of, of God's will. So if you've got a stable, rational universe, stable senses that provide accurate information, and the natural ability of the mind to aggregate sense data into conceptuals, conceptual absolutes, So we've got the universe created by God, the senses created by God, the mind created by God, all of which lean towards reason and absolutes. So reason is a product of divinity, and the existence of God does not limit uh, reason. Now, of course, he would say that reason is focused on the material world and so on, but... All right, so uh, I go on to say, 32 years ago, whatever, where Kant argues for the moral subjugation of the individual, Locke argues that individual ethics are the highest good. Where Kant argues for collective dictatorship, Locke argues for individual freedom. So this was my, again, 32 years ago, my graduate school thesis was that the philosophers who argue for higher realities always end up advocating dictatorships. And philosophers who argue for empiricism end up with individual freedom and minarchism, very, very small. 
governments. So I wrote that the fundamental difference between the two systems lies not in metaphysics, for Locke also believed in a higher reality, but in epistemology. The most essential... So Locke had to believe in a higher reality because if he says all knowledge comes from the senses and the only thing that exists are things that we get through the senses, he would have to become a material atheist, which he wasn't. Whether that's because of the fact that material atheists were killed... Uh, I mean, this was so bad that a contemporary of Locke's that Locke argued with was uh, beheaded for going too far in pushing back against the divine right of kings, uh, deplatforming you know his entire skull, so to speak. So uh, we don't kn- we don't know what the true beliefs of philosophers were, because philosophy was under threat of torture throughout almost all of human history. Now it's under threat of ostracism and and reputational attack and so on, but it was under direct threat of torture for most almost all of human history. So, yeah, Locke could not say that the only things that exist are what we get evidence of through the senses because that would eliminate God. So he does believe in a higher reality. And like a deist says that God wound up the clock of the universe or the watch of the universe and then withdrew and does no longer interferes, he would say that what I'm talking about is the realm in which we have to exist. Yes, there's a higher realm, but the realm that reason focuses on where it's absolute is the realm of this realm. For Locke also believes in higher reality. So the system, the difference between Lant and Kark is not necessarily... Uh, Lant and... <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of funny. I meant to say Kant and Locke, and I said Lant and Kark, <laughs> which is a very odd name for a British bar. Anyway, so the difference between the systems of... Kant and Locke, not in metaphysics, for Locke also believes in a higher reality, but in epistemology. The most essential difference is the validity of the senses. Kant argues that the senses are invalid arbiters of truth because they cannot penetrate the higher reality or things in themselves, which have superior truth value. Right? The senses can't get to this new amenal realm, the realm of forms, the higher realm, or what Kant called things in themselves. And so the higher realm has really infinitely superior truth value to the realm of the senses, according to Kant. Locke, on the other hand, argues that the senses are valid arbiters of truth because they are the tools God has provided man in order that he may know truth. As Locke puts it, and I quote, if we can find out those measures whereby a rational creature put in that state in which man is in this world, may and ought to govern his opinions and actions depending thereon, we need not be troubled that some other things escape our knowledge. I focus on the things of this world, which is where we actually live, and we can find out the truth about this world for sure. So thus Locke accepts the premise of a higher reality, but rejects that it has higher truth value qua or relative to human consciousness. Locke's purpose in an essay concerning human understanding is to prove that man can attain certainty through the medium of the senses in the absence of innate ideas, or, this is how he defines innate ideas, and I quote, primary notions stamped upon the mind of man which the soul receives in its very first being and brings into the world with it. First he notes that no common opinions exist throughout the world. Even the three laws of logic are not universal for, quote, children and idiots have not the least apprehension nor thought of them. 
right? So again, the discovery of different cultures, different religions, completely oppositional ways of life and language and, and social organization is like, okay, if you're going to tell me that human beings are born with innate ideas, then how do you explain the fact that human beings have no ideas in common? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, right? Everything is painted blue, but there's lots of different things that aren't blue. Well, so what? It's a higher truth. So uh, I go on to write, the argument often used by supersensualists is that common opinions exist when reason is applied. Locke replies that, quote, that certainty can never be thought innate, which we have need of reason to discover. If you have to prove things, how can you say that they're innate? For reason is a tool used to deduce unknown principles from known principles. Locke argues that reason is a necessary but not sufficient cause of the discovery of unknown principles but denies that the use of reason automatically provides them. Even if, however, an understanding of innate ideas was simultaneous with the use of reason, it would not prove that these ideas were innate, for they depend on the use of a faculty, reason, which is not innate. It's like saying, well, everyone is born with the ability to play guitar perfectly, and then saying, well, you're going to have to learn guitar. It's like, what? <laughs> So, instead, Locke argues for the development of the mind from tabula rasa to conceptual knowledge through the medium of the senses. For example, since children learn arithmetic involving higher numbers after they learn arithmetic involving simple numbers, and that generally, quote, less general propositions are certainly known and firmly assented to by those who are utterly ignorant of those more general axioms, right, uh, people will believe that everything falls before they understand the Newtonian, or for that matter, Einsteinian principles of gravity. Um, it would seem that universal ideas are derived from specific examples, and thus cannot be considered innate. To the question, hath a child an idea of impossibility and identify it before it has of white and black, sweet or bitter? Locke would answer, no. Perceptions come from the senses, and concepts are derived from the perceptions. Right. So, if we're saying that concepts are innate, then concepts should precede identification of sense data. And he's saying, look, kids know black and white, sweet or bitter, long before they come up with the concepts of impossibility or conceptual identity or classifications or anything like that. So, since children start with more simple ideas and only evolve to more complex ideas, saying they have the complex ideas first is completely insane. It's like saying, well, first we have a fully built house, and then what we have to do is get all the ingredients to build the house. Right? It makes no sense. Turning to morality, Locke finds no innate ethical principles. A den of thieves may act upon the principle of keeping contracts, he argues, but this is a mere convenience among themselves. It is not a conceptual moral understanding, for it is not universally acted upon. Right? So thieves will keep contracts among themselves, while violating contracts with others in order to steal from them through fraud or something like that. Any innate moral principle would never be questioned, yet Locke argues that, and I quote, there cannot any one moral rule be proposed whereof a man may not justly demand a reason. Since the reason for any moral principle may be asked, the principle cannot be innate. The only concept which may be innate is the idea of God. Yet Locke quotes the examples of the ancients and several contemporary societies which know nothing of God. Epistemologically, the development of concepts 
thus rests on the sensual perception of entities. You've got to see stuff in order to categorize it. According to Locke, concepts such as white, sweet, hot, etc. do not exist in the entities themselves, but in our minds. Entities possess characteristics which produce these perceptions, and those characteristics are innate to entities. But concepts depend on two things central to consciousness, medium and proximity. A red ball, for instance, is not perceived as red in the absence of light, nor, it is, nor is it perceived as red in the absence of sight. Thus the concept of red exists in the mind only after the first two conditions have been met. Because circumstantial conditions external to consciousness must be met in order for concepts to be developed, concepts cannot be considered innate to consciousness. Right? How can you have a concept of red if you're blind? You might hear the word red, you might have it described, but you wouldn't have that concept within your mind because you are, sight- you are sightless. I mean, I remember when I was a software developer, I had to remind myself when developing user interfaces that 10% of the male population is colorblind. So colorblind people have the concept of gradation, light and dark, different shades of gray, white, black, but they don't have concepts of color. And so how can we say that concepts are innate to us or ideas are innate to us when every single example of people who cannot perceive that concept do not have that concept, do not understand that concept? It's like saying... Well, Japanese is innate to us as a language, but you have to be in Japan and raise speaking Japanese or learn Japanese by yourself in order to understand Japanese. It's like, well, no, 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 come on. If it's innate to us, why do we have to learn it? And if you say Japanese is innate to us as a language and somebody who's never been exposed to Japanese just can't speak Japanese or understand Japanese, you can't say that it's innate. Obviously, right? So, again, back in the day, I wrote, Concepts inhabit the mind in memory. Since one cannot think of red without ever having seen red, thinking of red must involve retrieving previous sense impressions from the memory, the, from a quote from Locke, storehouse of our ideas. The most vivid of these memories are those accompanied by pleasure or pain, for, and I quote, the great business of the senses being to make us notice what hurts or advantages the body. What is the purpose of knowledge? To aid survival. And asking the senses to detect that which has no impact on survival is, I mean, he wasn't Darwinian because Darwin was centuries ahead, but to ask the senses which are developed for the pursuit of survival and the avoidance of danger, which is two sides of the same coin, asking the senses to detect that which is irrelevant to the survival of the body is asking for the impossible. It's like saying to a novel, it's a bad novel because it can't dance. Or that painting is terrible because it didn't bow to me when I entered the room. Oh, our senses are tragically limited because they can't see infrared. It's like, was infrared important to us for our survival as a species? No. No. So we didn't develop the ability to see it. It's like saying, well, human beings are terrible because they can't navigate caves with sonar like bats do. It's like, was navigating caves in the dark essential to our survival? It really wasn't. So, 
I, I wrote back in the day, thus the central purpose of Locke's epistemology, as predicted by our model, is validating the means by which the mind aids the survival of the body. Because concepts exist only in the mind, i.e. are not innate to the soul, they cannot survive the destruction of rational consciousness. Because the mind is dependent on the body, the first and strongest concepts developed by the mind are those which aid the survival of the body. Now, in my graduate school thesis, I talked about the uncertainty principle. The mind is subject to error. We are uncertain of things. We are wrong about things. Where does this uncertainty principle reside? Now, if the uncertainty principle resides in the senses, that means that the person is a higher reality person, right? A platonic realm, supersensual, neuromenal realm guy. Things in themselves, blah, blah, blah. Higher realm, higher reality. So they say, well, we make mistakes, but the mistakes come to us from the senses because the mistakes can't perceive the higher reality wherein perfect truth exists. So I talk about this as the uncertainty principle. Where are we uncertain? Well, in reality, in the senses and so on, right? If you're a higher realm guy, if you're an empiricist, the uncertainty principle is in your mind. Your mind makes mistakes. Reality ain't making mistakes. Your senses aren't making mistakes. It's your mind that makes the mistakes. So I, I write... I wrote, Locke firmly fixes the uncertainty principle in consciousness itself. The truth or falsehood of certain ideas can only be determined by reference to things external to consciousness. And I quote from Locke, Whenever the mind refers to any of its ideas, to anything extraneous to them, they are then capable to be called true or false. Aha. Uh-huh. Whenever the mind refers to any of its ideas, whenever the mind refers any of its ideas to anything extraneous to them, they are capable of being called true or false. Right. When you say things about reality, then you are either right or you are wrong. Right? That is really powerful. What is true or false? It's the relationship between concepts and the world, because concepts being derived from the world are there to explain the world, empirical reality. Ideas are derived from reality through sense data, and therefore the only thing that is true or false is the things that are described in the world. I'm going to read it again. This is an amazing thing in philosophy. So he writes, Whenever the mind refers any of its ideas to anything extraneous to them, they are then capable to be called true or false. There's a standard of truth or falsehood independent of consciousness. Now, that's not the case with revelation. Revelation, consciousness is the ultimate arbiter of truth and if anything contradicts things in your ideas in reality it doesn't matter your ideas are the primacy thing if there's any error it's in the senses or reality of somebody else never the error error is never in you so i wrote back in the day for instance the concept of centaur is false because centaurs do not exist external to the mind the concept man on the other hand is true because other men exist objectively here we can see another development in accordance with our model the ability of individuals to determine truth from falsehood. (sighs) Fantastic. I wrote, because all individuals possess senses and the concepts 
are derived from the senses. And the truth or falsehood of a concept is determined by its accordance with sensual information. All individuals have the ability to determine truth from falsehood. <laughs> See, I didn't just wander into philosophy off nowhere. All right. I wrote, Furthermore, we predicted earlier that a metaphysical belief in objective reality would result in the epistemological premise of the validity of the senses, which would in turn result in the epistemological principle that all concepts being derived from characteristics of entities may not contradict the characteristics they describe. Right, so you can't say that red is blue because red is derived from a particular wavelength and therefore because it's derived from a particular wavelength it cannot contradict the wavelength that it is derived from. So, I wrote, Locke follows our model. Having established objective reality and the validity of the senses, he argues that, and I quote, concepts are false ideas when they put together simple ideas, which in the real existence of things have no union. Ideas of substance are in this respect also false when, from any collection of simple ideas that do always exist together, there is separated by a direct negation any other simple idea which is constantly joined with them. And again, I, I know the language is a little, little challenging. So, to continue to quote Locke, Thus, if to extension, solidity, fusibility, the peculiar weightiness and yellow color of gold, anyone join in his thoughts the negation of a greater degree of fixedness than is in lead or copper. He may be said to have a false complex idea, as well as when he joins to those other simple ones the idea of perfect absolute fixedness. For either way, the complex idea of gold, being made up of such simple ones as to have no union in nature, may be termed false. So, if you say, look, gold is divisible easily, right? It's a soft metal. Gold is divisible easily. And it also has a diamond hardness. That's a contradiction. Hardness is just one aspect of a diamond. Softness is one aspect of gold. So if you're going to say that gold is soft and then include a contradictory element from another material called hardness, then it's invalid. It's false. Now, this is incredible. I'm, I'm telling you, this is like, this is the root of all the modern freedoms that we enjoy, such as they remain. It's an incredible thing. Because if you say that no concept can contradict any property of that which it describes, that's the path to human liberty right there. Because there's no such thing as Society. There's no such thing as the collective. There's no such thing as the country that can demand your sacrifice. Because the concept of humanity can't include people with opposite characteristics. Ah, hum human beings should not initiate the use of force. Okay, then that means all human beings. If you're going to include human beings who can initiate the use of force then you have an invalid concept. This is individualism, liberty, freedom of speech. Now, again, 
He doesn't get to the state of a stateless society. He doesn't get to true voluntarism. He doesn't get to a truly free society. But that's metaphysics because he's got this higher realm, which was, you know, at sword point, probably enforced. So I describe 32 years ago. Boy, it's funny to think I could be talking about this 32 years from now. So if I'm stay healthy. So 32 years ago, in describing this passage from Locke, I said, thus the concept gold being derived from individual characteristics may possess no criteria which contradict any individual characteristics of the entities it describes. Our model predicts this principle applied to ethics. It will result in the principle that the individual good is the only good. Right? Social good is saying, look, that which is good to an individual is good to an individual, but you put enough individuals together and there's a general good that contradicts the good of an individual. Which is like saying, if I, if I pile up enough lizards, some of them become mammals. If I put enough lead weights together, they all reverse gravity and fly up into the air. No, no, no. Putting things together doesn't contradict the characteristics of the individual. There's no such thing as a common good, collective good, social good, no subjugation of the individual to the group. The good is individual good. That's it. It's like what is good for a lion is good for all lions. There's no collection of lions that requires individual lions to be killed because the good of the lion is the good of each individual lion. There's no aggregation that contradicts the properties of everything it describes. Well, if you pile enough red balls together, they all turn blue. Or half of them turn blue. And it's like, no, that's not... If you've got a group of red balls and there are a dozen blue balls in there, teenage boy style, (laughs) there are a dozen blue balls in there, you don't have a group of red balls. If you have four coconuts and an orange, you don't have five coconuts. Right? You can't have a concept that contradicts any individual thing it describes. Now, you can say balls. You've got red and blue balls. Yeah, they're all balls for sure, but you can't say they're all red balls. So, as I say again, because good is a concept and concepts describe characteristics of individual entities, no collective concept of the good may contradict the good of the individual. Locke firmly establishes this principle in the realm of language, noting that words, being concepts, must always refer themselves to things external to consciousness. Yeah, everything eventually comes back to consciousness. The things external to consciousness. The relationship between language and the senses is, for Locke, absolute. Words label concepts derived from entities because... And I quote, it is impossible that every particular thing should have a distinct particular name. Right. Of course, right? If you've got a whole bunch of bowling balls, you don't say, well, this one is Stan, and this one is Bob, and this one is Ahmed, and this one is whatever, right? You take, Bring me the bowling balls. You can't have a, a, a grass. You can't give a name to each individual blade of grass, right? So I wrote, words identify definitions of characteristics. Thus, they cannot contradict those characteristics. Errors in language arise when men cease to use words as definitions of characteristics external to consciousness. 
but use words as self-defining conceptual structures or structures that refer only to themselves. Right? Errors in language arise when men cease to use words as definitions of characteristics external to consciousness, but use the words as self-defining conceptual structures or structures that refer only to themselves, right? If a word can't be traced back to something in the outside world, it's fine. I mean, I can talk about a dream I had. My dream can't be traced back to things outside in the world. Therefore, there's no such thing as true or false in my dream. I can be honest or not about the dream, but there's no such thing as impossibility in a dream. Oh, that can't possibly be because a dream. It's a manufactured reality. It doesn't trace back to external sense data. So if you can't trace it back to external sense data and you claim that it's true, it's nonsense. It's just a bunch of nonsense. And you can think of like class and all these kinds of things and, and things that are just sort of made up that, that don't trace back to actual facts or right? human beings, right? However, I wrote, if words are clearly and consistently defined in relation to things external to consciousness, and strictly derived from the component characteristics of objective entities, a science of morality becomes possible. And Locke wrote, Upon this ground it is that I am bold to think that morality is capable of demonstration, as well as mathematics, since the precise real essence of the things moral words stand for may be perfectly known. And so the congruity or incongruity of the things themselves be certainly discovered, in which consists perfect knowledge. Now, my approach to morality called universally preferable behavior is this. Now, Locke never did syllogistically prove morality. That would be pretty dangerous in his day, and he was on the run a lot. My ancestor, his great friend William Molyneux consistently said to him, dude, please do morality. Please, please find a rational proof of morality. Prove morality in the same way that we prove mathematics. Prove it. I'm begging you. But Locke never did. William Molyneux never did. But I did. <laughs> All right. I went on to write. Locke's position that morality may be objective and rational is directly opposed to the suprasensual position that morality is subjective and irrational. Locke establishes his position by noting that morality, being a concept, is derived from principles transmitted through the objective medium of the senses. The senses, thus language and thus morality, are objective because they refer to a realm external to consciousness. Locke's epistemological position thus conforms to our sensual model. Simple ideas or perceptions are incapable of being generated by the mind and thus must come from a realm external to our consciousness, a real realm external to our consciousness, and thus are not fictions of our fancies, says Locke, but objective derivations. However, there are certain ideas which relate only to themselves, mathematics, for instance, yet they are still true because they are perfectly consistent with their axioms. In this argument, Locke deviates from our sensual model because sensualism holds that mathematics are idealized abstractions of sensual information, manipulated on the grounds of sensually derived rationality. That's quite a mouthful. This is what I wrote. 
Mathematics are idealized abstractions of sensual information, right? We see circles, we see lines, and so on. We see triangles. Manipulated on the grounds of sensually derived rationality, right? So they're consistent with their own axioms, but consistency with axioms, laws of non-contradiction and identity and, and either or, only exist because sense data, sense reality, objective reality, conforms to, right? A ball is a ball and not a ball and an elephant. If there are two objects, something is either a ball or not a ball. It can't both be a ball if, if they're different, right? So because we get these things, the rules of reason come from the facts of reality through the evidence of the senses. All right. So uh, I wrote, for instance, were no lines to exist in reality, they would not exist in the mind. Locke, however, places moral knowledge in this sphere, thus disconnecting it from empirical proof. Thus, moral knowledge, like mathematics, revolves around the criterion of internal consistency. Thus, Locke is forced to differentiate moral truth from metaphysical truth. And uh, he wrote, Moral truth, which is speaking of things according to the persuasion of our own minds, though the proposition we speak agree not to the reality of things. Metaphysical truth, which is nothing but the real existence of things, conformable to the ideas to which we have annexed their names, right? So he's saying that moral truth exists within the mind. It's not directly traceable to the principles or facts in reality, and therefore uh, there's a certain amount of not proof that, that you can get to. So I wrote, this distinction undoubtedly results from Locke's religious beliefs, because morality is the province of God, and God is not manifested in sensual reality. He cannot conceive of empirical Morality. Locke's failure to derive absolute morality from sensual premises, a feat performed at the beginning of this treatise, that was my first run at UPB, left morality open to the charge of subjectivism. And this uncertainty may have prompted Kant to reject subjectivism for the sake of absolutism, in his terms, reject knowledge for the sake of faith. Locke's argument for the existence of a deity is that, and I quote, the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Something must be eternal, he argues, and that something must be a cogitative being, a thinking being, because, quote, it is as impossible that incognitive matter should produce a cognitive being as that nothing or the negation of all being should produce a positive being or matter. This erroneous argument may be excused on the grounds of ignorance. Having no access to the theory of evolution, the problem of the existence of a rational being may tend to imply creation. Yet Locke may be chastised for saying, in the absence of a knowledge as to the origin of man, that an unknowable being created us in some incomprehensible manner for an indeterminate purpose. In the absence of knowledge, it is better to admit that we do not know, rather than pretend knowledge by muttering incomprehensible irrationalities. On the nature of faith and reason, Locke admits a truth that most suprasensualists go to great length to obscure. And I quote, First, then, I say that no man inspired by God can by any revelation communicate to others any new simple ideas which they had not before from sensation or reflection. Revelation is incommunicable to others. This formulation is an essential difference between Locke and the suprasensualists, 
and has a great effect on his political philosophy. By openly admitting the subjective and irrational nature of revelation, Locke exposes the fraud attempted by supersensualists, however unwitting or unthinking, in their political formulations. According to supersensualists, because revelation cannot be communicated, total obedience to the enlightened despot is the only possibility of good for the individual. Locke utterly rejects this principle. Because revelation cannot be communicated in objective terms, and man may know objective truth through sensual rationality, quote from Locke, no proposition can be received for divine revelation or obtain the assent due to all such if it be contradictory to our clear, intuitive knowledge. God himself or his messengers on earth cannot say that two and two make five. By recognizing the subjective nature of revelation, Locke destroys any possibility of revelation participating in the social or political life of man. While Kant felt it necessary to destroy knowledge in order to make room for faith, Locke writes that, quote, Faith can never convince us of anything that contradicts our knowledge. Locke, placing the uncertainty principle in consciousness itself in accordance with sensual epistemology, recognizes that revelation, because it involves consciousness alone, is innately subject to error. Reason, however, being derived from an objective realm external to consciousness, is the final arbiter of truth. Because revelation is a concept, and concepts may not contradict sensual characteristics, revelation cannot contradict sensual evidence or objective reason. This axiom destroys the automatic moral authority of the enlightened despot. Reason is a faculty possessed by all. Revelation is possessed only by some. Reason is more accurate than revelation. Therefore, no individual may command another based on revelation. This syllogism, as we shall see, is the central axiom of Locke's political thought. Before plunging into the second treatise on government, let's pause for a moment to review the relationship between Locke's philosophy and our essential model. Metaphysics. Objective external reality. Epistemology. Validity of the senses. Concepts perfectly derived from the senses. Concepts may not contradict characteristics of the entities they describe. Reason, the final arbiter of truth. Ethics. The individual may determine good from evil. The role of the mind is to aid the survival of the body. The good is that which aids the body. Reason and empiricism serve this end by correctly identifying characteristics of external matter. According to our model, these premises will result in a political model of limited democracy. Let us now turn to Locke's political thought to determine if a model holds. Because sensual evidence and objective reason are within the reach of every individual, all individuals possess the ability to determine truth from falsehood, good from evil. Thus, Locke's formulation of the social contract is that individuals enter into the social contract with the government in order to maintain their ability to pursue happiness. Because the pursuit of happiness is open to all individuals, 
all individuals have the right to reject a state which undermines or destroys their ability to pursue the good on their own cognizance. As Locke puts it, God, who has given the world to men in common, has also given them reason to make use of it to the best advantage of life and convenience. In the state of nature, no common judge exists to enforce the arbitration of conflicts between citizens. We say enforce because reason exists in the state of nature, but reason, not being innate to consciousness, may be rejected in favor of violence. The possibility of immorality thus requires the establishment of a state able to enforce the rational arbitration of disputes. What is it then that makes the individual subject to the law? First, Locke argues that the capacity of knowing the law makes the citizen subject to it. This again rejects the principle of the enlightened despot. The enlightened despot is unjust because his will, being a product of revelation and therefore unknowable, cannot bind his subjects. Our prediction that the concept of the good is only a description of individual good is borne out as well. Quote from Locke. But though every man who has entered into civil society has thereby quitted his power to punish offences against the law of nature in prosecution of his own private judgment, yet with the judgment of offences which he has given up to the magistrate, he has given a right to the commonwealth to employ his force for the execution of the judgments of the commonwealth, whenever he shall be called to it, or are indeed his own judgments, they being made by himself or his representative. Right? So you have to obey the law because... Also he said, look, if you're punishing someone for a wrong they've done to you, you're going to be irrational, you're going to be too angry, you're going to be too upset, whereas a magistrate is more objective. So. so he says, thus the state is a representative of individual morality. The individual possessing reason can judge for himself, yet turns his sovereignty over to the state because the state possesses more power. Moral retribution is thus not a condition of moral individual versus immoral individual, but immoral individual versus the morally authorized state. The state thus acts as the individual would have acted in accordance with the law of nature. Because of the act of surrendering, surrendering individual judgment to law is dependent upon the just application of the law of nature, a law perceived and understood by every rational citizen, the citizen is perfectly justified in withdrawing his authorization, i.e. rejecting the laws, if the law undermines the natural rights of the individual. Again, this is radical stuff, and his influence on the framers of the American Constitution can't really be overstated, or the American Revolution as a whole. Right, so the law is there to serve your survival, and protect your freedoms. If the law harms your survival and diminishes your freedoms, you are no longer subject to the law. You can rebel. You can oppose the law. This is amazing stuff. Because the state derives its moral authority from its conformity with the objective law of nature, the self-defining will of the enlightened despot cannot create valid laws. And Locke says, Hence it is evident that absolute monarchy, which by some men is counted the only government in the world, is indeed inconsistent with civil society, and so can be no form of civil government at all. Whew. This is red hot, man. 
radioactive at the time. This is why he published this anonymously, right? So the existence of an objective judge, the law of nature, is a central mediating factor between the ruler and the ruled. Neither may contradict this law. The problem of the enlightened despot is that, because his will is both law and justice, there exists no higher authority that can be appealed to in the face of perceived injustice. Although this troubles suprasensualists like Kant and Hegel, not at all, Locke finds this lack of mediation abhorrent. And I quote, For he being supposed to have all, both legislative and executive power in himself alone, there is no judge to be found. No appeal lies open to anyone who may fairly and indifferently and with authority decide, and from whose decision relief and redress may be expected of any injury and inconveniency that may be suffered from the prince or by his order, so that such a man, however entitled, czar or grand senior or how you please, is as much in the state of nature, with all under his dominion, as he is with the rest of mankind. For wherever any two men are who have no standing rule and no common judge to appeal to on earth, for the determination of controversies of right between them, they are still in the state of nature. Right, so if you don't, if you have an unjust ruler, you're in the state of nature. You have no moral obligation to obey him. Of course, this is completely contradictory to the divine right of kings, where to obey the king was to obey God. And you see this, of course, in American politics, where people say the government is there to protect the natural rights of man. We are born free. And the government is there to protect that freedom. And if the government attacks that freedom, we have questions. The only mediation possible between men in the absence of an objective judge is violence. Thus the citizen of the enlightened despot is in a state of nature with his ruler, the only difference being that the victim of a dictatorship is vastly outgunned by the dictator. Because values do not exist without consciousness, i.e. they are not innate to the soul, the purpose of consciousness is to aid the survival of the body. According to our sensual model, because the body requires property, in order to survive, the right to individual property must be absolute. Again, Locke follows our prediction perfectly. The right to property exists in the state of nature. This right precedes the creation of the state. Therefore, no state may contradict natural right. Because the state is established primarily to protect property, no state may take away property without the consent of the owner. So reason is the key, and individual reason is the only reason that exists. So Locke writes, He that takes away reason to make room for revelation puts out the light of both, and does much what the same if he were to persuade a man to put out his eyes, the better to receive the remote light of an invisible star by a telescope. So Locke's answer as to how do you justify political power without reference to brute force and might makes right? Well, he does a combo of natural rights theory and the social contract. So natural rights are the rights that we have, given by God or by nature or through evolution, or the since individual survival is the only possibility of survival and individual flourishing is the only possibility of flourishing and individual happiness is the only possibility of happiness, we have these rights as sovereign individuals and we enter into engagement with a state in order to protect those rights, and of course, if a state fails to protect those rights or works against those rights, the state is illegitimate 
and can be uh, overthrown again. This is part of what happened in England, of course, in the time of Locke's life in the glorious revolution of 1688, where the king was essentially overthrown and power shifted to the parliament. And so his definition of political power is this, quote, Political power, then, I take to be a right of making laws with penalties of death, and consequently all less penalties, for the regulating and preserving of property, and of employing the force of the community in the execution of such laws, and in the defense of the commonwealth from foreign injury, and all this only for the public good, right? So it's all about protecting property, and he's very clear, right? All laws are death threats. So he says, making laws with penalties of death, and consequently all less penalties, right? So it all comes down to death threats eventually, for the regulating and preserving of property. And part of the property is the country itself, which he protects from foreign governments and foreign armies and navies through a defense agency of some kind. And all of it's for the public good. It's there to serve you, right? The government is there to serve the people. As Washington said, governments are like fire. They're a good servant, but a dangerous master. So the government is there to serve your needs. Politicians work for me. The government is there to preserve my rights and my freedoms. And when the government fails to do that, according to Locke, you have some serious questions. Now, of course, as far as whether there is a real state of nature or whether it's a theoretical construct to justify the political state, well, in the second treatise, he says that in the, quote, inland vacant places of America, you can see the state of nature between the various tribes and... Also, in between governments is kind of like a state, state of nature because there's no one central government that adjudicates disputes between uh, governments themselves. So he couldn't tell for sure whether the state of nature existed and whether there was any kind of contract. But he does say, of course, that the government is a servant of the people and it's there to protect your rights. And if it doesn't do that, uh, you have some options. So because God created man, we belong to God. Right, The infusion of labor principle. You infuse your labor into something, it becomes yours. So we are God's property. And God made people, sent them out into the world that God created, quote from Locke, by his order and about his business, they are his property, whose workmanship they are, made to last during his, not one another's pleasure, and being furnished with like faculties, sharing all in one community of nature, there cannot be supposed any subordination among us that may authorize us to destroy one another as if we were made for one another's uses as the inferior ranks of creatures are for ours. Right? Again, he's a very dense writer, but, I mean, you get hand cramps writing, it's not voice dictation and, and uh, copy-paste, right? So he's saying, look, if, if we belong to God, we can't destroy each other any more than we, I can come over and destroy your car. You, your car doesn't belong to me, it belongs to you, so I can't destroy your car. So we can't harm each other, we can't enslave each other, because we're not animals, we're creatures of the rational souls. We all belong to God, and therefore to subjugate one another is to attempt to harm or destroy God's property, and we don't, we don't have that right. So he also says, quote, He has no liberty to destroy himself, or so much as any creature in his possession, yet when some nobly use, then its bare possession calls for it. So you can't kill others and you can't kill yourself because you belong to God and other people belong to God and you can't destroy God's property. Now, of course, back in Locke's day, you didn't really have a very good way of storing value. Um, 
gold coinage was subject to theft and continually debased by uh, governments and central banks and so on. So he did say, look, there's a limit on how much you should be able to own. And also because the primary value, primary useful economic entity in Locke's time was land. And if you end up owning all the land, everybody else gets pushed off into the ocean. So he did say that there were limits to uh, property, which is kind of kind of important, right? So he said, look, if, if you have more than you can possibly use, then that's not particularly valid because the earth is given to everyone in common. And while some skill will allow you to accumulate more land, you shouldn't be able to own everything. That would be kind of kind of nuts. So he did have limits on this. Again, how that's enforced and so on, you know, to some degree, progressive taxation and so on and all of that sort of stuff. But he did sort of put limits on property that it's not an absolute right no matter what because you have to be able to use it. Otherwise, you're keeping it from other people and wasting it. Like if if you have a 100-acre farm, but you only ever farm 50 acres of it because that's all you can manage, all you can deal with, then the other 50 acres is going to go to seed, it's going to get grown over, and then people are going to have to expend massive amounts of labor to reclaim it from nature and the trees and all that. So uh, you can't justly own that which you cannot uh, put to any kind of good use. Now, of course, there were counterexamples to this idea of the social contract, right, that we voluntarily gave up our rights uh, to the government or gave up some freedoms of the government in order to protect our property and our rights that the government is the lesser of all evils. I mean, the Norman Conquest, actually, my family came over from France in the Norman Conquest, 1066. And so the Norman Conquest did kind of compel Locke to say, yeah, okay, sometimes citizens can end up accepting a government that was originally forced upon them. And that's kind of important, right? So he has to, he's trying to argue against this view, and this is how he characterizes this view, quote, that all government in the world is merely the product of force and violence, that men live together by no other rules than that of the beasts where the strongest carries it, right? So he has to admit that, look, some governments will come about because of force or or violence, but there are legitimate governments that come about through a social contract. So it's a little dicey, this reasoning, but he at least is remaining accurate to the historical examples that he couldn't just wish or will away. So it's pretty shaky stuff and very dangerous stuff because if you have a government that protects 95% of your property rights, you end up with a very flourishing and economically wealthy society that the government can then feast on and use to grow. And so it's the kind of thing where if you get it a little bit wrong, it ends up being extraordinarily wrong, like the property rights protected by governments in the West have created the foundations of massive technology that is currently being harnessed by governments around the West to diminish liberties and so on. So, you know, you could argue that he did a lot of good for people for a short amount of time, measured in centuries perhaps, but in the long run, allowing for a violation of the non-aggression principle in the form of the state that he ended up sowing the seeds of, well, I mean, the challenges that we're facing now. And the social contract is kind of dicey. It's kind of dicey. To some degree, it's like saying, hey, man, I asked you while you were sleeping last night to lend me $100, and I said, just don't say anything if you're happy to lend me $100. And so you lent, you're going to have to lend me $100 because I did ask you, and, and you assented by not. And he's going to be like, I, but I don't remember assenting, and I certainly didn't wake up, and I didn't actually voluntarily in an awake state assent to this, so I'm not sure how I owe you the $100. And the idea that the social contract is 
the foundation of obedience to political power, that's a challenge because a contract is individual and it's almost like it's derived from the original sin thing. It kind of flips itself a little bit around there. And are you are you validly bound or are you bound in a valid manner to a contract that you never assented to? Well, UPB answers this very simply. Can a one-sided imposition of a contract be valid? Can that be universalized? Right? No, it can't be. Because everyone has the right to unilaterally impose contracts on others, then the contracts all cancel each other out. So I say, well, you you owe me $1,000 according to the social contract, which everyone can impose whatever they want. Say, and the other guy says, well, no, you owe me $1,000. No, you owe me 1000 And it all cancels out. So social contract theory can't possibly be universalized in that you cannot impose unilateral contracts on people. Nobody can because it can't be universalized. Therefore, it can't be universally preferable behavior. So again, I love Locke for his epistemology. His metaphysics were a little dicey, but to be a pure atheist was impossible really in his day. And he was hunted and haunted, and, and the king sent men to try and trick him into speaking words of treason and he had to burn a whole bunch of his notes, uh, as usual, as we've sort of seen before. So, yeah, he was hunted and haunted by the state, and the idea of coming out as an outright secularist or atheist, uh, he was an atomist, or I guess back then what was called the corpuscular theory of uh, little tiny bits of things uh, making up everything else. So he had to carve off a place in his nature of reality where contradictory entities could exist, but he really separated it. I think it's that issue that has him then justify political power according to natural rights theory that are only defensible by the state and that people are bound by a social contract that was never identified historically and nobody assented to in his current day world. In other words, the social contract is a miracle. It's counter to evidence, it's counter to nature, and it's logically self-contradictory because not everyone can impose it. And therefore, magic is required to justify the political power of his day. And in my view, and I think quite reasonably so, if you need magic to prove your point, you're wrong. Well, thanks, everyone. Appreciate that. Sorry, this was a fairly lengthy one. I could have done a lot more on Locke, but we'll keep ourselves going. Please let me know what you think of this project challenging as it is significantly. And please, please, if you're hearing this outside of supporting the show, can't can't believe it. If you could go to freedomain.com forward slash donate and help out, I'd hugely, hugely appreciate it. Thanks, everyone.